Jason Miles. Uh, just a reminder, you got to unmute yourself. It's the uh, button on the bottom, the, the microphone with the line through okay. it. Okay. Now I, I, it was covered up by some other thing. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. All right. I am now joined uh, by a returning guest, uh, musician, podcaster, uh, horror movie enthusiast, uh, expatriate resident of, uh, of, of, uh, the nation of Mexico <laughs> and freshly minted sublation magazine columnist, Jason Miles. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, man. I'm doing all right. No complaints today. Excellent. Um, so, so yeah, I wanted to, you know, you were on a, you know, you were on a few weeks ago. I, I don't remember time blurs together, but not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we might have previewed the first of the articles we're going to talk about a little bit then. But, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, since that conversation, uh, you wrote the article and it's been published. So I want to talk about the article that you uh, just head out in sublation and also the one that you are working on right now. Uh, so let's, uh, let's, let's start out with the one that you just did this, uh, Donald Trump's, uh, Chinese democracy I, moment. <laughs> Chinese democracy moment. Um, I, oh, the title, first of all, you know, I'm, I am a musician and I play, uh, heavier music and I grew up in the eighties and nineties and, uh, was a fan of Guns N' Roses' first album, and I remember the hype surrounding what would have been their like fourth record, I think, uh, Chinese Democracy, which ended up taking them like eighteen years and and thirteen million dollars, and it was fifth, right? Because there's the uh, Appetite for Destruction, Use Your Illusion, Wanted to, and the Spaghetti Incident. Does the Spaghetti Incident count? You <laughs> no, have, if you're not counting GNR lies. And you okay. can't count the spaghetti incident. I totally forgot about you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, wherever it is in the you know, pantheon of Guns N' Roses releases, uh, it, it was a flop in the sense of it didn't do commercially what anyone expected it to do. And then you have to ask yourself, you know, what did people really expect it to do this many years later? But I look at Donald Trump as this thing that kind of is a hype machine. He's kind of always been a hype machine. Um, and I think his political moment is over, but his hype moment isn't over. So much like that record where no one talks about the record itself. People always talk about the hype around it, the drama in the recording process the plethora of musicians um, that, that went through the group, everyone that left, the, all the original members that left. And um, Trump is somewhat similar. I mean, a lot of people have abandoned him. I think the GOP is trying to move away from that kind of over-the-topness. 
Mm. Um, even in DeSantis's kind of ludicrous, uh, we don't want to teach that lesbian black history. <laughs> even in that ludicrous speech, he does say at some point that black history is, is U.S. history. Um, which I really couldn't see Trump saying. I, you know, he would have just kept doubling down on on uh, what he thinks uh, CRT is and, and then not funny old man racism. <laughs> so I, I think because he actually had four years in office and those four years are for the most part outside of COVID and very nice people on both sides, I think that's what he's going to be remembered for. There's no real policy. Most presidents have tax cuts. Um, so Well, I mean, it, it does kind of seem yeah. to me, looking back at Trump's time in office, that, um, yeah, I mean, there's the Charlottesville, uh, there's, uh, you know, there's the whole COVID debacle, obviously. Um, and uh, also there's the uh, there's child separation right at the. Uh, yeah, uh, that's those are the sort of like really uh, distinctive Trump things that that he which, did, which was already kind of there and it just mm-hmm. gets ramped up big time under him. Right. Administration. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was taken, uh, I think there was a trend that was already going on and, and he, he definitely escalated it in, uh, in kind of a crazy way. But, uh, but if you take those elements out of it, which, you know, obviously, you know, those are, <laughs> those are a pretty big deal, right? But uh, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, if you, you know, if you, you ignore all the chaos and insanity, right? Uh, but if you take those elements out of it, like, really, if you look at 97% of what he did in office, um, it was basically like what Mitt Romney would have done, except yeah. probably with a much more erratic foreign policy. <laughs> sure. Like, but, but like, I mean, most of, but, you know, I mean, like, most of what Trump did, I mean, like, what, what did he really do for the most part? Like, he had a, I mean, he definitely had his his moments of sort of lurid, base pandering insanity, and you know, and, and uh, negligent response to COVID. But like, uh, most of what Trump did was was just normal Republican shit, right? I mean, he he did tax cuts for rich people. He he did deregulation. You know, he, he uh, uh, you know, he appointed you know, union busters to the labor board. I mean, it's like all, you know, I mean, it's, it's all just like completely regular establishment, uh, Republican kind of, um, you know, he appointed, you know, he appointed federalist society people to the courts, you know, it's, it's, you know, like it's, it's just, it's not, uh, but I mean, I, I agree. I mean, like, I I think what he's going to be, you know, I have a hard time imagining. I mean, I guess maybe, uh, people might remember that he appointed the people who uh, overturned Roe v. Wade, but I mean, like other, but I, you know, but I do agree that I mean, like, what's gonna, like, what stands out in people's memories from the from the Trump years are those moments of chaos and insanity. January sixth. Yeah, he'll, he'll be sure. remembered forever as January sixth, and whether people want to act like that wasn't a big deal or they want to act like that's the scariest thing in the world that to me doesn't really matter. I mean, that's how most Americans are going to remember him. And not everybody's really clamoring to relive that moment and empower a fringe uh, of society. Um, so 
to me, his political moment is dead. And the people that like to talk about him, I mean, even look at social media, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter are just, you know, hey, look, we reinstated Trump. Can you guys pay attention again? Um, and even that isn't really making the news the way it did in in, uh, in the 2016 uh, presidential race and, and kind of through his whole time in office. And that piece was, you know, I talk a lot about uh, Barack Obama, because to me, he is a president as brand because Trump ran against more so the brand of Democrat that comes out during the uh, the Obama years. Um, he did against a lot of policy. Um, and it makes me look at it, the, the entire piece originally was going to be one very long one. And Jean Bajlan convinced me to cut it in two. And the second one, which I'm working on right now, is uh, is the contemporary left a a lifestyle brand? Um, because a lot of what I see of some stuff is online, right? And, and I didn't want to say like the online left to say like there's some sort of big difference, mm-hmm. but um, a lot of stuff to me seems like consumer choices, a lot of consumerism with a hammer and sickle. Uh-huh. Um, like, um, there's always, you know, I, my politics are to the left of this person. I was like, I don't know what that means. That's just, you know, as yeah, you right. say, that's how you feel in your heart. That's not really <laughs> anything, anything concrete. Um, there's a kind of foolish idea of these like true left, like magazines and media sources, like, um, People think Jacobin is like way bigger than it is, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's just it feels like punk in a way mm-hmm. where you know those two things, uh, the culture of authenticity and the culture of deconstruction, kind of worked against that that music until it just kind of became a commercialized joke of itself. And you could maybe say the same thing about contemporary hip hop. Where, uh-huh. you know, and this is just my opinion, kind of contemporary, more popular hip hop looks like a living color skit from 1992. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's that's important to me because I think people get so wrapped up in consumer choices. Like, well, who did you vote for? And, and you know, why aren't the squad doing A, B, C and D when, you know, maybe none of those four congress people live in your district um and there is a divorcing from real politics and getting involved in real uh dues paying organizations and right um yeah yeah no for sure i mean i i mean one thing i was i was thinking about when you were saying that is uh i remember there was actually like you think back to like the the golden age of Facebook quizzes, <laughs> you know, 2012, 2015, right? Uh, whereas the like, which Harry Potter house are you? And shit yeah. like that, right? And uh, I think somebody actually made one at one point. Uh, it was like later, I, I guess it was probably later, a few years later than that, but it was like, that was like literally like, which like faction you would have been in in the Russian revolution. 
Like Jesus that was, that's, okay. it's a literally a quiz to tell you whether you were, you know, you would have been like a Bolshevik or a Menshevik <laughs> or social revolutionary or whatever. And it's like that, that literally is, I think when people say things like that, right. It's like, well, you know, like, you know, I'm actually to the left of Bernie Sanders. I'm a, you know, I'm a anarcho, you know, primitivist, you know, neo Ho Chi Minhist, you know, it's like, that's, <laughs> uh, like, uh, like, like that is kind of literally what you're like, you know, you're just sort of administering yourself a Facebook quiz in your head. <laughs> it, it is because, because what I always say is, okay, well, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know what that means. Does that mean we can't have coffee now? Like, what does that mean? I don't like explain to me what this means in the, in the broader scope of things. Does this mean you have some sort of political power? Does this mean you're running for office? Does this mean this is just the way you think? Uh, does this mean that, you know, you're a different kind of barista at Starbucks? Like, what does this mean when you tell me, when you, when you tell me these things and when you have to live this way? And again, it just kind of reminds me of, um, a music because there's such a culture of authenticity and everyone's always checking someone's authenticity. When you're constantly checking someone's authenticity, uh, and you're also part of kind of the culture of no. I mean, right? Being leftist, we're supposed to like push back against um, not just the status quo for status quo's sake, but you know, against the, the policies of the big two or the duopoly. Especially when we know they harm people, we want to see, we want a better world for everyone, right? As hippy dippy and utopian as that is, yeah. but you know, people get real caught up. And, you know, the banality of saying things like, what are you, a reformist? It's like, nah, dude, I'm just, I'm Jason that lives in Mexico. (laughs) I'm not reforming anything. I can't. I literally can't. Well, and it's like, I I know, like, what that reform versus revolution question, like, I feel like I know what it means in certain historical situations, maybe, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, if, if we're in... I mean, if we are in like Russia, you know, in like summer 1917 or something like that, right? It's like that, like, I kind of know what outcome that we could actually participate in helping to bring about or not bring about, we're arguing about whether mm-hmm. to do, right? But like, that's, um, you know, what I mean, right now we're, we're in a country with 6% uh, private sector unionization. And, uh, and like, if, if, uh, and like, man, I, I really, I really hope that the stars align correctly for us, so that you know, in twenty years or so, we could get Medicare for all, but <clears throat> or any sort of socialized medicine, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, like, which is, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, a lot of the other Democrats besides Bernie spent two thousand and twenty talking about their like slightly different plans for how they were going to do a public option or whatever, but like that, it, it all got dropped. Um, it all got dropped cold. And, uh, you know, January 2021, basically, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like nobody's, uh, nobody's actually doing, you know, any of that stuff, right? I mean, I would love to live in that world where I was like writing Jacobin articles about how, why the, you know, the, the Biden public option we just got wasn't good enough. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's another thing like Obama was trying to tax. I was talking to a friend of ours about this, um, about medical coverage, the quote unquote Cadillac plans. Yeah, this friend of ours, his wife going through cancer treatment, has a Cadillac plan. Her her hundred thousand dollar bill was covered, 
And at one point in time, that was something that the administration was trying to tax out of existence. So even people that are paying for medical coverage are, are fighting to even keep uh, some vestige of true coverage to to keep from you know being just destroyed by the debt. So taking on the healthcare system is a big task and it's going to take more than a small number of Congress people. You know, it takes a huge grassroots effort and it probably is going to take years. And for a lot of people, they're just getting hip to this over the last like eight years. So, yeah. You know, I, l- l- like all the hate that I see, generally this is in online circles, you know, around what votes people have or don't have on certain bills, no one really was, was paying any attention to California as they were trying to pass um, a health care for the state that originally came up in, I think, 2012 or 2014, and Jerry Brown shot it down. He was like, there's no way to pay for this. You're not, you don't have enough in this bill that makes sense to me. So um, a few state senators spent a few years making sure they covered all the bases, and then it was uh, the state Democratic apparatus that kind of shot the bill down. They're like, if you bring this up to a vote, you know, some of us won't be able to vote on it because we're we're taking money from yeah from from pharma or the healthcare industry, and you know it's gonna you're, you're gonna kill our our majority. So, and I mean that's that. I mean, look, I mean not to you know not no, to yeah, we can't yeah spend today to enforce the vote again because oh, uh, don't like say it. it. It's like Candyman. I think there's been more than enough <laughs> of that, but like the. Uh, uh, <laughs> but um, but but it is really striking because I think the California situation is it is actually a context in which that tactic would have made a lot of sense. Uh, that uh, like the premise is actually true that like you you could like embarrass people by making them cast a vote on it or not. And, you know, like you might actually be able to get some mileage out of that. Uh, but because uh, the sort of way that people. Th- you know, so many people on the left and in general, but on the left are, are plugged into media has a purely national frame. So it's like, what's the, uh, I mean, talking about what's going on in the state legislature in California, I mean, you know, you might as well ask people to like take an interest in what's on the floor of the, you know, parliament in Sri Lanka. <laughs> like, even if they live in California, right. Which is like not to put, too fine a point on it, like yeah, quite a few yeah. commentators do, right? Uh, so, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a hell of a market for that stuff. Yeah, I, but, I, but I, it, it, and I find that fascinating, right? You know, like people can yeah. get all you know angry about these things because it's an argument you can weigh in on, and you can always have the moral high ground, right? Right, and that's all that argument sounds like. It's always about a moral high ground, and it's a silly argument because no one. I, of course, would want health care. I don't have health care. If I get sick, I'm probably going to die. If I get cancer, going to die. I don't have parents that are going to come save me. I don't have a savings. I'm going to die. Right? That is the re- I don't even want to know if I have cancer. It might even speed up the process. So, of course, I would want some sort of socialized medicine yeah. um, 
and and to think that people don't because they don't you know sloganeer it the way you may want them to is or 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 understand it the way you want them to i mean there's some people that think medicare for all is the end of private medicine which is not so yeah i i mean i think um you know I, that that thing you mentioned in passing by the way about the uh the cadillac plan is pretty amazing and it does say something at least about how the um at least the debate about uh healthcare policy has has changed in the last um decade and a half i guess at this point right since obamacare yeah. because um it's cuz like that was that was something that there was like very little like i knew what you're talking about but like i i think that if you if you weren't like plugged into certain kinds of left media sources that were very critical of mm-hmm. uh, of the Obama administration, you like I think you could have paid a decent amount of attention to all that, not even really known that that was in there. Yeah, because uh, it's just not it wasn't really on people's radar. I mean, the whole thing was like, wow, there's like a Democrat who's proposing something that's gonna, you know, that's going to sort of address some of the problems with America's healthcare system in this weird sort of patchwork of like, you know, you're going to get an individual bandaid for each individual problem and like, um, and sort of uh, Rube Goldberg machine kind of way. But like uh, that, that was like such a huge thing that like um, the whole debate about it was purely between people who wanted that. And, uh, and, <laughs> and people who are on the right wing, you know, who who opposed it for right wing reasons, uh, but like that provision, right? The uh, tax in Cadillac plans. I mean, it was is like there's really like obscene part of the law where they they the like uh, basically what they were going after was generally speaking these like healthcare plans that were either provided by or had been won and bargained by like really good unions. Uh, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And so uh, they were, you know, so you have like pe- people who, you know, teamsters and stuff like that who had like amazing healthcare plans where uh, you didn't have to pay anything out of pocket. And the theory behind the Cadillac tax was no, 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 everybody has to have uh, skin in the game. That's the phrase they, they'd use that like it's bad to have people not have to pay anything out of pocket because then they're going to like overuse healthcare services or something. Cause that's like the, you know, the theory is like, Oh, that's like part of the problem with healthcare is that people are like using it too much. Cause you know, I guess somebody somewhere likes to go to the doctor. Um, <laughs> F those people. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have a call. Let's, uh, let's take our call. Mm-hmm. Chase. Hey guys, how you both doing? Good. Uh, not too bad. Uh, getting over a cold, but otherwise pretty good. Definitely just a cold, right? <laughs> not COVID this time. <laughs> so, but I, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I wanted to connect uh, some of these thoughts with um, the Stephen Crowder situation a little bit <laughs> that's okay. been going on the last few weeks. I'll, I'll bet the Stephen Crowder slave contract includes healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> Well, off topic, um, did either of you see the uh, Andrew Callahan documentary that came out like three weeks ago, four weeks ago? No? Uh, was, it, was it about uh, Stephen Crowder? 
No, no, it wasn't. It was, uh, it was ostensibly about January 6th, but there was a lot of, um, man in the street, person in the street interviews that took place, uh, in the documentary during the course of 2020. And I guess something that like jumped out at me in, uh, in the documentary and, and which is connected with kinds of stuff you guys are talking about is just how social media has kind of made everyone try to become an influencer. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, everyone's trying to have a curated life experience and, um, that's kind of scary. Right. Um, Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, it's just, um, you know, everybody, like everybody's trying to establish like a brand and, um, you know, and like social, I mean, it is like, obviously like social media, people like Jody Dean have talked about like communicative capitalism. And like, I think we even here on, you know, the left forget just that these are not like neutral planes mm-hmm. for communication that, you know, the incentive structure is to kind of turn us all into like little, little like petty bourgeois influencers, you know? And, um, and the reason I brought up the, the Crowder thing is like, you know, you, uh, Jason, you were talking about like the cult oh, of them, you, been, you know, and who are bought. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Now you can. Yeah, I, I, can. I, you just you cut out for a second. second. I was talking oh, about what now? You said, Jason, you were talking about it and you broke up. Jason, you were talking oh, about Oh, uh, you were talking about, um, oh shit. Um, well, you were, you were talking. And- yeah, the cult of authenticity. Yeah. And, um, and you know, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, like say in the case of uh, Crowder, I, I have, you know, I have friends who are actually like big fans of his and who have like bought into the idea that like over the last you know couple weeks, the reason he, you know, destroyed his friendships or relationships, uh, with, you know, the people at the daily wire and, uh, have made all these maneuvers is that he actually cares about like free speech in the abstract and not, you know, like a career move and money. And, you know, I think, you know, like, I guess the reason I, 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 I'm thinking about him or I'm bringing him up is like, you know, whether he believes he's fighting for free speech or not, or just making a career move, it's almost secondary because like the big thing happening here is that like, he really doesn't want to have to work like a regular job and like nobody does, but like, you know, (laughs) that's, that's like the primary thing. (laughs) No, I mean, let's, let's be honest, man. I mean, I think a lot of people that I see try to do this kind of stuff. I'm like, you guys would have been dropping a a mixtape, you know, eight years ago. But now, <laughs> I would have had a you know shitty band. But you know now, uh, this is the the new way to go, um, which is which is kind of fascinating to me, um, because it, it doesn't to me it doesn't help a conversation sometimes mm. go any further than just feelings, right? Like to get nationalized healthcare in twenty twenty three. You know, you're talking about something we've never had in this country at all. And there were like legitimate debates about healthcare shit in the turn of the century and also again kind of during the New Deal. And you know, what people felt was more important was, you know, programs to help especially, you know, destitute families and 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 women, right? That were left without 
husbands dying in the workplace before we had stuff like OSHA. Um, so it was like, you know, welfare programs and unemployment, you know, and, and you get Medicare and Medicaid, which was a compromise during, uh, during LBJ. And, um, to think that we can just start the conversation was that been 60 years after LBJ and be like, okay, we can get it cause we asked for it and we didn't ask for it collectively. There's no movement really behind it. There's, there's movements here and there, but they're, they're relatively small. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we don't have, I mean, like the bottom line thing for me always is just like, there's no real, like we don't have an organized working class, right? I mean, there's like a 6% unionization, you know, unionization rate in the private sector, like we said earlier. And also that 6% isn't even united behind this demand, right? I mean, that's, no, because they all have healthcare, not all, but you know, most of those people, <laughs> yeah, have, yeah, like it's know, good, good healthcare. And the fear is that, you know, well, you're going to use this and to think that union leadership is a bunch of, you know, Ben and Jason's is, is kind of a, a silly notion. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I mean, it just seems like it's it's like you don't have. Um, I mean, in a way, right? I mean, I think the idea that you're going to uh, there's a sort of like one weird trick that's going to achieve this this like really this political outcome that would be a very big deal. That like as you said, we've never had it in this country. Uh, there's a it's also like a huge chunk of the economy, like. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even though Medicare for all would would mean you know like nationalizing all the hospitals and stuff, I mean it would just it would just be nationalizing health insurance. Uh, you know, I'd also be in favor of that, but whatever. Like I have a, <laughs> um, like it's still what you're talking about is nationalizing the commanding heights, at least with the insurance of of a giant percentage of the economy. I mean, this is like, I don't know exactly how much the U.S. economy healthcare takes up, but it's not a small percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be a huge victory. You know, that would be a huge, you know, working class victory. And, um, and, and so to kind of think that like, if, you know, a few politicians were better or whatever, that we'd, we'd achieve that. I mean, like is, is kind of a, a liberal theory of change, you know, that it's, it's like, um, that all you know that the reason that things happen or don't happen politically is because of whether you've you've elevated the the sort of like good-hearted people who will look after you and know what to do and and all that stuff rather than it's like a function of the the balance of power in your society i mean the great man of history myth is is still extremely prevalent in american society and you see it um, even in these small leftist circles and the debates that center around what I always keep saying is just consumer choice and, uh, and, and technocratic solutions to, to complex problems. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things I've been coming uh, increasingly frustrated by is people um, talk sometimes as if like the state or the government can enact policy by like waving a wand and not that, <laughs> not that like institutions. Like I've I've worked I've worked in and out of like local government institutions, and it's like it's it, it's it's kind of a, a you know sort of trite point, but it's like it really is just people 
who mm-hmm. know one another and deciding to follow orders or not. You know, I mean, like I remember a case where uh, a local police uh, department, um, there was some reform, uh, some local police reforms. And, you know, the sheriff, uh, you know, was very upfront with a city council member, friend of mine, who was just like, yeah, we'll take it under advisement, this law that you passed. (laughs) 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 You know, and that's that's also true of, say, if you wanted to set up uh, Medicare for all, you'd actually need to set up the bureaucracy to do it, you know, and the institutions to do it. And, and, um, and, and Chase, so, how do you do that in this moment where on a bipartisan level, people hate government, right? There's right. not one person that I talk to that's like, yay, I want more government. Give me more bureaucracy. <laughs> right. So and, and for, for better or for worse, I mean, sometimes you need some bureaucracy where we live here in, in Mexico, uh, there's supposed to be a pension for workers right. that you pay into. No bosses pay into it. They just pay everybody under the table. Mm. If you had the ability to have people come out and make sure bosses were paying people properly and paying into the pension plan, you wouldn't have, I forget how many billion it is um, that they're missing from this pension plan. So a lot of people don't, don't have it. So you see, you know, 60, 70 year old uh, abuelos bagging groceries for tips yeah. to, to live. Right. So it's well. I would also say uh, the uh, the bureaucracy point. Like, I mean, yeah, obviously, I agree that the uh, there should be more uh, Mexican state bureaucrats enforcing out there enforcing this this pension law. I mean, if you if you read uh, uh, Karl Marx's Capital, I mean, like a lot of the stuff about the the ten, you know struggle for the ten hour day and all that stuff is is about this like you know i mean is is literally like there is a chunk of that that's like a complaint essentially about an underfunded state bureaucracy that you know there there are like this tiny number of factory inspectors to to go enforce these laws and all these factories and mines and uh in england uh and and you know <laughs> that was a problem and you know and i i think that if um you know i think if we had like a better funded faa uh combined with you know not having Pete Buttigieg run the transportation department, but like having somebody who actually wanted to, uh, who actually wanted to like bring the regulatory hammer down on the airlines, uh, then you know stuff like all the people who got stranded on Christmas last month uh, mm-hmm. wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. But I, I do also think it's it's important to to kind of speak to it's like okay, so where does this uh, reaction to the very idea of government bureaucracy come from. And I think a lot of times what people are really reacted to is the idea that you're going to have government bureaucrats who are in a position to um, like kind of micromanage things or like oversee what, what you're doing, right. Or like that Mm -hmm. they're going to be, that you're going to have um, that, you know, like people, like anybody who's had to experience a sort of uh, like the gatekeeping kind of bureaucracy hates that for a reason. I mean, like the cliche is like the DMV or whatever, but like, yeah. uh, but I would, you know, the thing I always like to point out about this is that a lot of times there's this sort of inference from, okay, I don't like petty bureaucrats having a lot of power to therefore we should have like a smaller government. We should have smaller social welfare programs and all that stuff. 
And I actually think a lot of the times that's backwards because um, where government bureaucrats get their power from often this kind of gatekeeping power is precisely limitations on who's allowed to access some program, right? I mean, if you yeah. have, a, um, if, if you've got, you know, I mean, if, if you have, you know, something set up where you can like, you know, have, you know, whatever federal financial aid or whatever, if you, if you check the following 300 boxes that like, you know, you've just empowered some bureaucrats like decide whether yeah. you, your your case rises to the level where you deserve help, right? But like, if you have universal programs, uh, by definition, you're cutting that out, right? You know, you, you, nobody's nobody gets to decide whether you need help. I mean, if you want to have a, uh, it's like if you, uh, you know, I mean, if if colleges just worked the way that like K twelve schools worked, I mean, it's like you don't have to, you know, you don't have to prove to anybody that like, you know, if you live in a district and you can prove that you live there, you don't have to jump through any extra hoops to, to let your kid be enrolled in school that, you know, they, they actually have to take them. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, uh, I, one of, I think one of the things that's going on here is that government as like a word is kind of a nominalist term, you know, because it constitutes everything from like the Marines to like your local County health department, which especially prior to COVID, was like three people in an office with like a website that hadn't been updated <laughs> since the nineties, you know? And like, mm-hmm. and I mean, like I, I live in Sacramento right now and yeah. you know, there's, there's a huge, uh, huge homelessness uh, issue. All I mean, it's everywhere and all over the country, but you know, especially here and a lot of, I see what I see a lot of um, happening uh, here is just sort of the responsibility getting hot potatoed from, one uh, run of government to the next, you know, so it's not the city's problem. It's the counties. It's not the counties. It's the state. If it's not the state, some particular department. And it it reminds you, it's just like how fragmentary, like in some ways, intentionally fragmentary, the American state is. Homelessness to me, is a great, a great segue, probably more so than healthcare. Because everyone's got an opinion about it, but not too many people are active in what actually happens. And we, that's one of those things that we totally leave up to people in office to fix. Um, California, as I am a California native and I love being from California. Um, Sadly, I can't live there right now, but. It's a statewide problem. I remember back in my day, Chase, I don't know how old you are, but I remember going to K Street Mall downtown and loving the smell of the kettle corn when you when you uh, hit kind of the middle of the of the downstairs. Um, and and uh, I don't even know if they have a mall there anymore. Right. Isn't it gone? You know, I'll be, I moved here like three months ago. Okay. Um, so, but, uh, I don't, I don't think that there is a mall in there anymore. I could be wrong. I think it's all in the, in the suburbs now, but yeah. yeah, downtown Sacramento used to look way different. And I, I, I haven't been there in a while, but when I was there and Jesus, I think the last time I was there was like 2010 and, and the problem had gotten pretty bad in 2010. So I can only imagine what it looks like now, but it has been kind of a massive failure uh, from a statewide level and a state that's spending billions of dollars to to try to combat this problem. And so much gets lost in bureaucracy yeah. and petty infighting between politicians. So yeah. you have this situation in Los Angeles, for example, where they're you know, literally spending like a billion dollars on, on housing people trying to. 
and you have one city council member that's like, look, I have this empty hotel that just got remodeled before COVID. They, they want to open up and just be a, a hotel that houses homeless people. And we can't fill it because of all these hoops. And it's taking some people eight months sometimes to get inside of a place. Right. So why don't we just foot the bill and just throw... 600 cat, however many, you know, yeah. rooms are open inside. And you have city council members that won't vote on this because he was in the room during the quote unquote racist rant from Nuri, uh, was her name? Martinez when she was talking about, uh, Mike Bonin's, uh, half black son being a monkey or whatever. So that posturing, if you will, is preventing real people from getting in housing. Right. Right. It's amazing. I mean, you know, um, here, uh, as part of my work, I, I, I read into a lot of the, I will say this about Sacramento is that there are organizations that do a shit ton of work, at least in data collection on the homeless population here. And so there's a lot of, um, good social science survey data, um, on it. But at any given night in Sac, I mean, Sacramento is a town of about a half a million people. And at any given night, there's 10 to 20,000 homeless people. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's, you know, I live next to uh, the highway here, uh, which is sort of one of the few strips of public land, um, the interstate, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, uh, -huh. uh yeah, uh, and, well, and, and highway 50 as well. Okay. I know you're okay. You're, I know you're kind of downtown. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and, you know, the area along there, as as well as, you know, some of the local parks is some of the few areas which um, is public land that, you know, the police don't uh, move the encampments off of. Um, and, you know, when, when the rain, when it started flooding here uh, the other month, um, you know, sure enough, a few people died just from exposure mm. and uh, one woman drowned, you know. Um, yeah. And, and like I said, and everybody knows it's a crisis. Um, but there's a kind of, everybody seems paralyzed, even though it's, money it's, is shifting around to try to solve the problem. It feels too big. So you get kind of these silly slogans, like housing is a human right. And it's like, okay, but I don't know what that means from a policy perspective. Like, okay, how are we going to get these humans houses? And, right. um, you know, right now, housing is privatized, and maybe that's one of the biggest sins of society, right? <sighs> the mortgage. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like, I think about, like, Henry George a lot recently, mm -hmm. the 19th century economist mm -hmm. who uh, believed in the single tax movement on just land. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, like, the reason I, I've been thinking about him is just because, um, yeah, like, uh, it seems like private land ownership uh, like, you know, that sort of like Jeffersonian homesteading idea, which has now metastasized into just like the mortgage being like your, you know, gateway to having a middle class life is, you know, just, it's just totally broken. I mean, I, I, um, I'm quite happy and comfortable where I'm at, but you know, I'm, I have a, like a shitty one bedroom apartment, which I'm paying <laughs> like 1650 for up here, yeah. you know? And it's just like, might there be a connection between the cost of housing and you know <laughs> the, the number of homeless people? 
<laughs> and there's no there's no caps on it. There's no regulation on it. It's yeah. just more, we're gonna we're gonna throw more money at it, and the money gets caught up between the nonprofits. It's not to say that every nonprofit is evil, because because right. I don't know that. I don't know right. what's in their heart, as as Ben always says. But it it, it is frustrating to see the moment I cross the imaginary line to go to go get my mail in in San Isidro, California, I see the parade of of homelessness that's on display. Yeah. And it goes all the way up to downtown San Diego if, if we have to go to the airport and you know, definitely Los Angeles might be the worst if it's not the Bay Area where I just moved away from the largest encampment in the city of Oakland. Um yeah. it's there's people that try and there's people that are that are doing the best they can. Um, but uh, it's just, I, I think a lot of people's heads are a little in the clouds almost about it. Because again, it seems like such a massive problem. No one wants to think about real concrete solutions. So you have people saying things like there's more houses and there are homeless people. It's like, yeah, that's true to an extent. But I mean, you want to just displace people to the hinterlands of... Yeah, I mean, I mean homeless, because, homeless yeah. people do have like families and friends. Why don't you go to Kansas, stupid? There's <laughs> <laughs> there are houses that nobody's in in Kansas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you know, and, and I think we do. I, I mean, it is interesting just to connect one dot from earlier in the conversation that, like, with with healthcare as as like frustratedly and agonizingly far as we are from actually being in a political position to implement it, at least the left knows exactly what it was, right? It's like, mm -hmm. here's the policy that that's going to get it done. And, and like, here's exactly what it would look like. And there are, you know, like actual bills that are written up and, and all that stuff. And uh, it, it's just, you know, it's just you just have to move the mountains that you'd have to politically hit you know, to make it happen. But I mean, like, at least at least we know what we want to have happen. Whereas, uh, whereas the housing case, I think that's much less true. Like, I, I don't know that there's a, um, like, obviously there are things that, you know, there are even local and state policies that we like and that we don't like, you know, but like, it's, it's not uh, like, what's the equivalent of like Medicare for all for, for housing. Cause, cause as you say, I mean, if you say housing is a human right, I mean, like, yes, I agree it is. Right. But like, but that doesn't tell you very much. I mean, this is like um, by itself. I mean, like, cause I mean, and, and here's the tell, right? Like, I mean, there are any number of centrist Democrats who don't support Medicare for all who will, who are more than happy to tell you that healthcare is to right. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's uh, like, I've, I've heard that in plenty of these people's speeches, you know, like it just, cause it's like, that's a so abstract. It doesn't really commit them you know, to, uh, to doing something specific about it. Right. So it's like, yeah, what, what is the, right. what, what is the specific policy that we want in order to implement this 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 right to uh, this this right to to housing and um, you know what is um, you know because like a lot of a lot of the conversation I see is like really about um, sort of trade offs going on on a super local level mm -hmm. right like like do you um, you know is it better to you know, to, uh, to like let homeless people sleep in the park or, you know, or, or to, to make people go to housing that might not be great. Is it, uh, 
uh, should we, or broadened it out from the homeless population just to housing in general? I mean, should we, uh, uh, you know, should the left support, um, like easing zoning restrictions to make it easier to build or does it make sense to do things that, that, you know, that, uh, left people very often do actually do at city councils, like, you know, like block new construction as like a bargaining tactic and, to get, get more and, low, low rate, you know. And we did a, we did a thing on that in San Francisco. There's a whole, there's a whole to do over a, a planned bill that was going to have so much space for a nonprofit, so much space for commercial and so much space for quote unquote affordable housing. And it was stopped. Uh, and there's been a huge fight and it stopped amongst progressives in a quote progressive city council. Yeah. Um, and it, it, all this stuff doesn't get a lot of attention, which to me is kind of sad because as people love to have slogans and this goes back to my whole point about kind of a lifestyle brand, not too many people are involved. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you, I, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, you know, as a, a slight aside, but an example of this is like, you know, the Humphrey Hawkins act that Jimmy Carter signed supposedly the guaranteed. Full, full employment act. Yeah. It supposedly guaranteed like a right to a job for those willing and able to work. But what that concretely means is that like the federal reserve takes considerations of employment rates you know, in, you know, under review when they adjust monetary policy <laughs> interest rates, like that's, that's concretely what that ends up meaning, which is not nothing, but at the same time, it's probably not what most people imagine when they say something like that. I mean, it's pretty close to nothing, especially when you compare it to what people originally had in mind when they proposed that. No, for sure. For sure. I, I, I know, uh, Connor probably has a question as well, so, uh, I'd love to get off. But. All right. Yeah. Now, I mean, like originally, like the, like if you look at the original versions of the Humphrey Hawkins, it was like, it'd be like the, people could like sue the government if they couldn't find a job, which, um, which, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is kind of, a, it, it's almost like the, the legislation equivalent of the joke in the first season of Californication where David Duchovny's character wrote a book called God hates us all. That was turned into a movie called a funny little thing called love. Yeah. <laughs> uh, side note, Ben, side note, yeah, Ben, yeah. all the book titles in Californication. Slayer Slayer albums. albums. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yep. He wrote a book called South of Heaven. What? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That'll fall off one time. It's like, oh, yeah, that's just Slayer. It's just got Slayer albums. Your first book, Haunting the Chapel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, Connor, uh, in our last few minutes together, what's on your mind? Scott, are you with us? Uh, just a reminder, you have to unmute yourself. It's the button at the bottom of your screen with the microphone with the line through it. Just tap on that. Oh, no. Okay. Well, uh, if Connor is having technical difficulties, uh, then, Connor, I'm going to be doing another one of these next Sunday. And I promise if you get in the caller queue, uh, even if other people get in before, uh, before you, I will, uh, I will take you first. Um, there's a question in the chat about employee owned companies, ESOPs. Uh, 
Yeah, I'd make a distinction between employee stock ownership plans and and like worker cooperatives, because um, they're, you know, employee stock ownership plans. Even if they have a majority share, oftentimes the way that the company actually works to the day to day level is just like a regular corporation, you know, and, and that's not, I think, really getting at what people are really thinking about when they think about worker ownership, which is, um, you know, which is actual democratic decision making. Um, so that is just a side note to that comment in the chat. Uh, okay. Um, we have one other person. All right. Let's give, um, uh, let's give uh, Joey a chance. Uh, Joey, I want to, I do want to call it a hard out at five West coast time in a couple of minutes. Cause I need to go get some, you know, I'm going to go to a coffee shop and get some writing done. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> uh, I have not been able to do that today, but uh, real quick, uh, Joey, what's on your mind? Well, this might be pretty quick then. Um, I did. I wanted to know if you'd seen, uh, I don't know if you know this YouTuber's name is John, the Duncan. Uh, uh-uh. He did a, uh, kind of a uh, discussion of Caleb Maupin. Um, and the only reason why I brought it up, bring it up is because um, sometimes you do talk about degrowth and I've always kind of had a similar kind of take to the degrowth that you have. Yeah. And then I watched this video by uh, John the Duncan and a lot of the kind of the things that I had thought about degrowth, I think were kind of, shown to be more of a straw man of the of of it yeah maybe i mean i think that might be something to take a look at yeah no i will i will check it out i mean i think that there's a um uh i think there are certain kinds of positions that it's like okay they sound ridiculous and then people will like when they explain it's like no, no, no like and there are definitely people who advocate it who are very clear that they're saying the ridiculous thing right like uh doug head went on his podcast in a conversation with a couple of these guys that uh, uh they've written a book called half earth socialism and uh and they're like very explicit in the interview that they like their vision of like a solution to the ecological crisis is like uh, universe, like everybody goes back to like be a farmer and there's like universal <laughs> veganism. And it's like, I, I don't know. I, you know, good luck with that, man. I'm sure there are people who believe much more reasonable things, although there's also that like they still apply the same label to, uh, but it, and it's, you know, I wonder how uh, informative that label gets, the more you sort of minimize, you know, and like sort of scale it back to the most reasonable interpretation. But, I am open to checking that out. So uh, if you want to send me a, a DM or, or use the contact thing on my website, I'm, I, I am happy to, uh, I'm happy to watch that and possibly uh, be corrected. And if not, at least amused by the uh, discussion of the individual you just mentioned. So uh, in any case, um, Jason, uh, before we go, when is, uh, so the, you know, the, the first essay we were talking about. The, uh, first, the first essay is out now. The next one should be out next week once my editor, who is going to a coffee shop to do some writing, edits it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, check that out uh, when, uh, when that's done. And um, uh, so... And follow, you know, Jason's going to be writing for Sublation very regularly, so follow him there. Uh, and I'm going to be back here next week, uh, same time. I did a poll 
on Twitter to see, you know, since I'm cutting this down to one time, one day a week, see what uh, people wanted me to do it. And uh, Sunday was the uh, the people's choice. So this is what I'm going to be doing it next Sunday too. Uh, so I will see you guys then on the main show on YouTube. We are on with Slavoj Žižek uh, to uh, tomorrow night at uh, eight Eastern, uh, five five PM West Coast. Uh, so uh, Russell Sabriglia is going to be on the post game with us. So uh, check all that out. Should be a lot of fun. 